Storgy, the online magazine for lovers of fiction. Check out our dystopian and horror anthologies along with specialized merchandise. All these and more are available on our website, storgy.com. Well, uh, welcome everybody to uh, the second series of the Comma Press podcast. This is uh, the first episode of the new series. My name's Rob Page. I'm the founder and CEO of Comma Press. And um, this time around, we thought that instead of talking about the past, uh, the first series was very much about uh, history, in particular the history of uh, British protest. Uh, the second series, we thought we'd talk about the future. Uh, in particular, the, the relationship we have with the future through literature, through science fiction and through writing about, about the future. And the first episode uh, of this series will be looking specifically and, and, and uh, quite, quite broadly at the way in which science fiction is, has been used historically uh, to, to understand, to predict the future and also to what extent it's, it's, it's also about the, the present. Um, Today we're very, very lucky to be joined by uh, three fantastic guests. Uh, Professor Adam Roberts uh, is the author of 20 novels and counting, uh, 11 novellas and uh, collections of short stories, including the wonderfully named Adam Robots, uh, and numerous works of parody and criticism, in including uh, the history of science fiction for Paul Grave books. Uh, he's been nominated three times for the Arthur C. Clarke Award, um, and um, he has also been a, a regular contributor to uh, Comma Press's Short Story Commissions. Uh, he's also a professor of English at the uh, Royal Holloway University of London. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Amanda Rees. Uh, Amanda read her PhD in the History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge, uh, and shortly thereafter took up a position at York University. She's published widely on everything from the history of science uh, and on the history of prehistory. More recently, however, she's turned her attention to the history of the future. Uh, and she's, uh, amongst many other things, she oversaw a very interesting project called Unsettling Stories About Science. Uh, and thirdly, we're joined by Dr. Amy Chambers. Uh, Amy is uh, a senior lecturer in film studies uh, here at the Manchester Metropolitan University. Uh, she predominantly works in the fields of science communication and screen studies. Um, and her research, amongst other things, examines the intersection between science and cinema uh, and the representation of projected uh, and projected futures of, of women and minority groups. She has published on everything from the relationship between science and super, uh, superstition, uh, the rise and evolution of the Planet of the Apes uh, franchise uh, and uh, Scott Pilgrim. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for, for joining me. Uh, my first question is... Uh, to you, Adam, I guess, uh, very, very broadly, um, because of your your encyclopedic knowledge of science fiction and its and its huh. and its origins. Uh, yeah, pressure's on you now. Um, <laughs> where did science fiction come from? In particular, the the act of sort of predicting the future uh, through fiction. Where did it start? Brian Aldiss very famously asserted that um, Year One, um, Ground Zero, uh, Patient Zero, if you like, was. Um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. He, uh, Brian Aldiss said that's where it starts. But you've you've argued that it goes back a little, uh, quite a bit further than that. Yeah, in my history of science fiction, I argue it goes back to the Protestant Reformation around 1600, the early 17th century. Um, and I I have a lot of respect for Aldiss's argument. If we're saying science fiction begins with Frankenstein, then in effect we're saying science fiction is a kind of gothic literature. And there's a there's a lot of reasons why we might say that. There's a lot of gothic and gothic horror in a lot of science fiction, and particularly in the kind of dystopian side to it. But the problem we're starting in with Frankenstein, which is 1818, is that there's a lot of earlier books that are about things we associate with science fiction, voyages to the moon or strange technologies. And the reason I pick the, the 1600 as the, as the date, as the year zero, is we could, if we wanted to, go back all the way to Homer and the epic of Gilgamesh. It does seem to me the default for human storytelling is fantastical, actually. We like our stories to have a bit of magic, a bit of something goes beyond the everyday. Sometimes we like stories that just 
give us the everyday, but mostly we like stories to do more than that. There's still, there seems to me a point in separating out fantasy in the broadest sense from science fiction. And I think we can't have science fiction until we have a modern understanding of science, which comes out of the Age of Enlightenment, comes out of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and I, I don't want to push that too hard, though, because this is it can become quite a dry exercise in tracing genealogies. Sure. If we're thinking about how we think about the future, there is a, a different start point, actually, which even I can't argue with. Um, an American scholar called Paul Alcon has written a history of imagining the future. And he says people just didn't do that until the end of the 18th century. And he thinks the crucial date was the French Revolution. Once the age of revolutions gets going, people have to think in terms of planning for what the future might be, because the future is going to be different to the way it was before. That's the point of the revolution. You're, you're kicking out all the old ancien regime. You have to think of what are we going to do now? And it's not until the end of the 18th century, which is kind of in the same ballpark as Mary Shelley's writing Frankenstein, it's romanticism in the broadest sense, that people start thinking, what will the future hold? Let's write stories about the future. Let's imagine. Let's extrapolate. And by the end of the 19th century, with H.G. Wells inventing his time machine, he's not interested in going into the past. He's only interested in using his machine to see what the future might hold. What it holds is is quite grim. But that's also part, I think, of the, the kind of futurist imagining it's very interesting because i've had this conversation uh, uh with a, a writer hassan blasim the iraqi writer and i worked mm. with him on uh as you know the uh, the iraq plus 100 anthology which was turned out we didn't know it at the time but it turned out to be the, uh, pretty much the first anthology of science fiction from iraq and my question to him which he kind of responded to in his introduction to that book was why is iraq not had or, in, or indeed the arabic world not had a kind of uh, a particular moment in the history of science fiction why has it not had a uh, a heyday yet why is it still quite uh, unusual to find arabic writers and iraqi writers uh, writing about science because as you say you can look at supernaturalism you look at, you can look at the, the, the fantastical and you know you can go all the way back to thousand and one nights uh, and and further back um and his argument was was firstly uh, Iraq didn't uh, and the Middle East didn't have the industrial revolution that uh, that Western Europe had uh, late 18th century, early 19th century. So there wasn't that technology, uh, as you said, and and, they, uh, and the 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 scientific enlightenment was so far back in the Arabic world. It was kind of the Abbas, uh, the Abbasid Empire, 11, 11th century that there wasn't kind of that uh, technological kind of revolution. But also it's very interesting when you look at Arabic fiction and science fiction, um, there does seem to be a flourishing now after the Arab Spring, which kind of uh, uh, backs up uh, the point made about the French Revolution. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the European age of revolutions is the end of the 18th century through into the 19th century, but it's it, later revolutions have swept around different parts of the world and i think the point about revolution is it's a way of addressing manifest inequalities and things that are horribly wrong with the world it's a very extreme and often violent and it doesn't have a very good track record for sorting those problems out long term but it is at least apprehending the world as a problem to be solved as something to be changed and that engages not just the the futuristic aspect of the the human mind but I think specifically the science fictional aspect of the human mind. You're planning whole new societies. You're, you're coming up with something radically new from what has come before. It's interesting, though, if we if we pull back for a moment and look at the question of whether or not science fiction is actually really about the future and predicting the future. Uh, there's a common assertion that science fiction is actually more about the time in which it's written uh, and the way the future the way the future looked then, you know, this phrase, how the future used to look. And it's and it's particularly interesting to br uh, bring in you, Amanda, because, uh, you know, you, you've written about the history of, of the future, uh, which, w and we're now in a situation where, s for some people, science fiction is, is more of a cultural artifact of its time than a way of genuinely predicting what's going to happen next. Would you agree? I would both agree and disagree, she said, unhelpfully. Um, it's, 
one of the things that you get asked a lot, and I'm sure Adam and Amy will agree with me on this, when you start doing any kind of work on science fiction at all, is you know, d two questions. First of all, did the writers get the future right? And did the writers get the science right? And both of those are really, really interesting in terms of the way in which we think about the, the, the public or the democratic role of, of, of science fiction itself. Um, certainly as a historian, um, I find, uh, as a historian of science, I find science fiction to be extraordinarily useful because it tells you, it tells you about what people thought science was and could do in the past. You can look back and you can see the ways in which people are putting science to use. Not necessarily scientists putting science to use, but, but the, how the public understood science, how the public apprehended science, and how the public thought, in a sense, the future was going to be. Now, that is... So it's interesting as a historical document, but it's also interesting... Um, I think it's because it does tell you something about what a given population's hopes and fears for the future are. But it also does more than that. It's not just recording what's going to happen. It's also actively trying to change what's going to happen. And I can give you two examples of that, or I'm thinking of two examples. Um, the first is the work of um, John Wyndham, who is a particular favourite of mine. Um, I can see Amy smiling because I never lose the opportunity to drag John Wyndham into the conversation. He needs to be referenced and referred much, much, much more often. Um, but the, if you look at the Wyndham archive, if you look at how Wyndham wrote about his, his, his sense, what, what he thought science fiction was for, it's very clear that he sees himself as contributing um, to, to how pe not just to how people think about the future, but to showing people they've got choices about their future that there's nothing predetermined about the development of science and technology, that science is what scientists do. And scientists are not gods. They're, they're men, usually men. They're women for Wyndham as well. They're, they are people, just, just like you and me. And they can make decisions and they can also be influenced by public debate that, so that you, know, you, you get presented with a particular vision of a future, not because this is what's going to happen, not because this is something that is a prediction, but as a choice. You know, this is this is one particular version. Which way do you want to go? Is this is this the path you want to take? Do you want to head down towards the Eloy and the Morlocks, or do you want to go a different way? Do you want to make different decisions about the relationship between humanity and and the natural world, so on and so forth? The second part of that is a little bit more disturbing, um, and I was thinking of it when Adam was talking then about, um, and you were also referencing the the, the 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 Arabic science fiction and Iraqi and Iraqi science fiction. I've just finished um, editing a collection of essays on the um, the role that science fiction can play for the history of science. Um, and quite a few of the essays in that collection were about Chinese science fiction, about Bengali science fiction, about essentially about non-Western science fiction. <coughs> Um, and I think Adam is very, very correct when he identifies science fiction as, as almost that, that, that literature of modernity, that literature of, of the scientific world. You know, as we realise that we, we can change the world in which we live, that's the literature that grows out of it. But what happens then when that literature gets exported to the rest of the world? What kind of influence and how does that then relate to the kind of fantastical literature that already exists, the indigenous literature that already exists? Um, and so... You know, science fiction is explicitly used um, in the early encounters between China and the West as a means of, of teaching, uh, as a means of development, as a means of, of, of a, a pedagogic strategy for increasing scientific familiarity with, with, the, with, the, with, the, um, with the conditions of modernity. Similarly, in India, um, you've got oh, the, the essay. The, what the essay I'm thinking of in particular um, is a fantastic exploration of the efforts by indigenous writers to kind of take back the controls of development. There, to basically to be able to say, look, you know, this is this is one particular way of viewing the world, but we were already thinking that way before you guys came in and told us we were all stupid. This is this is an authentic indigenous tradition that needs to be paid attention to. Um, so you can see the kind of, the, 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 it's, it's not just predicting the future, it's about contesting the future and making decisions about the future. And I think that's absolutely crucial. It also has relevance to the question then of what, the, the other perennial question of how we define science fiction, because that's, I mean, and I don't want to give a definition, so please don't ask me to. But it is one of the experiences that I had in editing that collection of essays was essentially a series of debates over whether, well, this indigenous Chinese writing, that's not really science fiction because it's too fantastical. Mm -hmm. But it's about manipulating the world. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. It's about changing the world. And I would very much, if I had to go for a definition, I would go with Nala Hopkinson's definition, that science fiction is that genre of literature that grows out of the point at which we picked up a tool and started to use it to change the world, to make it work for us. Fantastic. Adam, you were going to jump in. I just, I was absolutely fascinating to hear that. And I think that's, that's spot on. And another way of framing it would be to say, of course, our, our imagination about what the future will hold will be shaped by what we think about, the, what we know about our contemporary situation. But we can imagine things will be different. What's very hard to think outside is precisely ideology, is, is our set of political and social assumptions. So, for example, if you read Robert Heinlein's stories of going to the moon and exploring the solar system, the space race is powered by industrialists and millionaires and individuals because that was Heinlein's opinion. He thought that the state was sclerotic and could never organise anything. We we're only going to get to the moon if some, mm -hmm. some brilliant captain of industry paid for a rocket to be built. And, of course, that wasn't how we got to the moon. We got to the moon because of state um, engagement with uh, bringing lots of industries together. Although the other point, I suppose, is that the future isn't something that just arrives and then we can peg and see how we how well we've done in terms of our prediction the future is something that always rolls on so now we're in a situation where the state is no longer really paying for us to go to the moon and people like elon musk are popping up saying oh i'll, I'll take us all to mars and we can have a wonderful time there and richard branson and yeah and we've come yeah. back to the Heinlein version perhaps of space travel amy um i just wanted to think through some of this in terms of utopian dystopian approaches to it because we've sort of been talking about um the more negative sides of this in terms of thinking about the worst extrapolation of a particular technology or idea um and one of the ideas that i've been i play around with is is the notion of speculative fiction and using the term speculative rather than science fiction um and thinking about it as speculating on the future regardless of whether that's a negative or a positive um future i'm really interested at the moment in um afrofuturism and the opportunities of that particular turn in terms of thinking about it as a almost political movement in terms of of showing that you can imagine a future that you can imagine a african future that is not bound to a particular set of historical uh, issues and um colonial practices um and i think a lot of that is then integrated with ideas of hope um not necessarily the individual stories which may themselves have dystopian elements um but the fact that um they're integrated with this idea of a hope for a future, hope for an independent future um, that sits outside of this Western turn of science fiction. And I think it's something that's really exciting that's happening in science fiction at the moment, both in terms of criticism and the types of writers who are gaining um, publishing opportunities, either through self-publication or through um, smaller publishing houses, something like Comma. They, they do some amazing work in terms of, of promoting those types of writers who might not necessarily fit into... A traditional canon and i think that sort of utopian hope side of it the speculation on the future as a political act is is yeah. something that sort of fits into this as well you talk about the importance of utopia uh, from a from a kind of a political point of view but as a as a somebody who's commissioned uh writers to work with scientists for for many years in, including adam uh we've often you know had many projects where we've paired scientists with writers in the hope that we can actually drill down into a bit of real science a bit of real contemporary research rather than the, the more broader use of science in science fiction and one thing that's often uh resulted is this the authors have a kind of a it's, it's kind of like a, a health and safety approach to the future in that they they feel uh compelled in a way to to write about how things could go wrong and how things uh, technology could be misused um it's like a risk assessors of the future uh, essentially you know ca yeah. ca <laughs> That's a really lovely idea cautionary tales about you know um you know what could go wrong and the scientists are often uh you know quietly afterwards uh very frustrated by not just you know the projects themselves they're, they're very happy with the projects but just more generally about science uh, fiction as a, as a as a genre in that there, there's just far more dystopias than there are utopias and um, it frustrates them that this the sort of in, in the more popular kind of narratives in the sort of science fiction that gets made into films etc etc there's often this 
kind of knee-jerk, slightly reactionary response to the dangers of, of science or the dangers of, of modernity, the dangers of new systems of government, et cetera, et cetera. My only response to them is that, you know, for, from a writer's point of view, you need to start with conflict. You need conflict and tension for the drama. Um, the, the main character, usually it's easier if they're um, kind of relatable and, uh, and uh, kind of sympathetic. So that sets up an obvious choice uh, or an obvious option for the uh, writer, which is to place the individual as a kind of frontiersman against a, um, uh, a kind of uh, like some kind of dystopic societal background. Um, and there's your, immediately your tension. You've got it. It's simple as that. Whilst writing about utopia, where's the drama? Where's the tension? Where's the conflict? Um, do you, and if, if you follow this logic, this kind of easy logic, uh, or this, uh, this route of the, uh, you know, the, of least resistance, you end up with science fiction being quite a conservative force. It's quite a, it, it's essentially sort of saying, you know, we could improve the, our current situation, but we should be very grateful for everything that's working about it and the you know potential problems in the future uh, so again uh, thinking about these definitions of, of thinking through what science fiction is or how it's used and um it almost as a creative thought space that's a horrible way of framing it um a an experiment a laboratory. yeah an experimental space for thinking through ethical issues related to particular uh scientific um inventions and um expectations as well so the, the sort of intended use of a science is one thing one of the interesting things that science fiction writers and um producers do is to take those ideas and and think about different ways that they could be used extrapolate them as, as to what could happen to those particular pieces so i've done some interesting research with um stanley kubrick's um archives in terms of his research for 2001 in space odyssey um, and he has huge reams of um, science data. He recalled, not recalled, yeah. he has lots of material um, that he collected from different agencies and groups, um, things like Honeywell Engineering. He had their sort of internal um, material that sort of imagined futures for their own technology, which then he then incorporated into 2001 and then took it to that next step. Um, I think with the science and technology in 2001, you get that split between it being both utopian and dystopian. Um, and it's not that all technology yeah. is going to go wrong. It's certain certain elements where it sort of uh, deviates from the perhaps intended plan of the, the scientists or technological um, engineers and, and programmers and et cetera. And of course, one person's utopia is another person's dystopia. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, there's a lot in what you've just said to, well, both what Amy said and what you said to, to, to unpick here. But, I mean, I think, you know, I, I would... I mean, yes, the demands of a narrative deal mean that you have to have... You start in a bad place and hopefully you get to a good place. Um, although I can think of um, several of Adam's novels where that doesn't happen, which is why, ah. I, why, I, why, I, lo why I love reading Adam's novels. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. Um, but it's... Let me tell you another little story, which is basically... You know, when I six o'clock on a Wednesday, BBC Two throughout my childhood, Star Trek would come on telly, um, and I lived for that day. Um, partly because you know, growing up in the eighties, Star Trek tells you that there is going to be a future; <laughs> it exists, yeah. and that Thatcher and Reagan aren't going to blow us all to hell in a handbasket. Um, but it also, I mean, and, and and there are many, many, many problems with the Star Trek universe, but it provides you with what in many ways is is a utopia nobody has to work you don't have hangovers anymore they've fixed the problem of hangovers they haven't fixed baldness <laughs> baldness look at well, jean luc picard yeah, yeah i'm so, yeah i would yeah, yeah i way. don't i will i will look at jean luc picard <laughs> for future, all day or all night <laughs> but it's also it's <laughs> the whole kind of um you, th you look at it, and it's not just a commentary. It's not just the, a commentary on the future. It's also a very, very political commentary on on the past, which is something that this is Star Trek specifically. If you look at the way in which um, storylines deal with indigenous peoples, particularly in the original series, then the kind of the overt attempt by Roddenberry to sort of say, in the future society there will be no racism, everything is going to be wonderful, is completely wiped out. The, you know, the way in which the show 
talks about the history of 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 um, indigenous populations is 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 deeply troubling and deeply problematic. So within every you know ostensible utopia, there's the seeds of dystopia, and I would want to argue also vice versa. I mean that's the whole notion mm. of of critical utopia, which our colleague Lisa Garforth knows a lot more than either me yeah. or Amy. Um, and that's you know people tend to well still do tend to sneer at Star Trek, but I mean I could never ever do that it's part of what gave me my passion for science fiction just as much as Heinlein and Asimov did I spent yeah. this morning editing a chapter that I'm doing on Star Trek Discovery so I think I, I I'm <laughs> we're we're both definitely both pro um Star Trek but I think the, pro- the critical and, and male pattern baldness Very much <laughs> um the create critical utopia critical dystopia um, positioning so that um, it's an interesting split between science fiction in visual media and in literature where there seems to be more of a potential for the utopian in the literary imagination than perhaps in the um, film and television sort of visual imagination I don't know whether that's because it's easier to create that sort of negative um, disastrous story world if that makes it more appealing visually um, but the sort of idea of critical utopias and dystopias where they're not simply saying that it's going to be better or saying that it's going to be dreadful. Um, it's the idea that you're able to see the difference between the present and that imagined um, future and be able to see what you could potentially change now in order to get to that future or change now in order to avoid mm-hmm. that future. So even the dystopian narratives have within them... Um, a critique that offers a, a a sense of hope um that there is a way to avoid this i think they had a really i'm going to use um <laughs> one of the episodes from the recent doctor who um which i know has had a very mixed response but there was a really interesting discussion in the second half of the series opener um where they end up closing with this sort of very dystopian yet critically utopian um message um, where not to give away too many spoilers, but they're they're, they're sort of um, meeting characters that are a version of humanity way in the future who have basically destroyed um, Earth. And there's this "be the best of humanity" um, is the message that comes out of it. Don't let yourself become that creature. Don't let yourself get to that future. So yes, it's very dystopian in terms of the future of humanity that it envisions. But the message there is to do with an activist, um, imagine activism, which is uh, which is Joan Harron's um, term, which uh, she's a science fiction and literature um, and science humanities scholar um, thinking about the potential for literature to be both an imagination of the future whilst um, encouraging and promoting activism. We are in a moment of dystopian vogue right now. And something, it seems to me, has shifted culturally. Everything you've, you've both said is absolutely right. And the dystopia and utopia exist in this complex, I might almost say, dialectical relationship. But there used to be more of a, a, a taste for a, a kind of pre-Raphaelite grace of Tolkien's Middle Earth. And it's been replaced by the horror show, the torture porn of, of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, the original <laughs> Star Trek series. Don't, Star don't, Trek's don't great. sit on the fence there. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, but Star Trek is the original series from the 60s is profoundly utopian, whereas the most recent iteration, Star Trek Discovery, is violent and horrible and everyone's nasty to one another. And that's, there's a sense in which all the big culture texts of the 21st century have engaged in a much more extreme kind of dystopian imaginary. I'd like to believe all the kind of things that they're saying. And another critic who's written on this in this in this mode is Frederick Jameson. And his Archaeologies of the Future book is an investigation into dystopia. And his argument is the reason we we love dystopia is not because we're masochists and not because we like wallowing in misery. It's because dystopia is our way of identifying what's missing in our present world yeah. that the stopping us from living in a utopia utopia dystopia is if you like the photographic negative of utopia if the hunger games becomes an enormously successful series as of course it did it's not because we want to live in the world of the hunger games it's because that series is identifying the ways in which the younger generation are getting screwed over by the situation as 
under late capitalism. And that's what we need to address if we want to make things better in a utopian sense. We seem closer now to, to, to actually being in the, sty- the dystopias that were uh, predicted for us. We're, we're kind of, um, you know, if, if you imagined a character like Trump as a, a baddie uh, in a comic book, you know, in a, in a uh, Batman series as mayor of Gotham, it would be thrown out of the, out of the writing, uh, you know, the editing committee for being, you know, too two dimensional for being unrealistic grotesque. and grotesque yeah and um, but but we're we're kind of there now what's also interesting is if you look at kind of uh, uh a number of film franchises which are maybe coming to the end of their lives um they're actually they've actually been the quickest to respond to trump as mm-hmm. a form science fiction if you look at uh the uh the new terminator film uh um uh, often referred to as Terminator uh <laughs> And if you look at uh, the Logan film, which was one of the later uh, X-Men films, they've both, uh, they were both like first off the gun, Logan first, in terms of uh, responding to things like uh, what's this, the separation of uh, families at the Mexican border um, and, and protests around uh, the border and uh, uh, imprisonment of, of refugees. Um, they've been faster than documentary filmmaking. They've been faster than... Um, you know, what might be called literary uh, or realist filmmaking. It's science fiction that's got there first uh, when actually talking about the present because it kind of recognises certain things that are happening right now uh, because it's been it's been kind of predicting them and uh, imagining them for so long. Would you agree? Well, but it's quicker because it recognises, in a sense, there are, there are already a set series of tropes of... of, yeah. of, 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 of sub-stories of, of, of narratives that can be quite quickly brought to bear. There's also covertness to science fiction. So um, Rod Serling, who did The Twilight Zone, would say um, that in his shows he could have um, aliens say things that he'd never be able yeah. to have a politician actually mm. um, express. So it was, it's not always necessarily that they're responding quicker, but they don't have the same political, moral, social uh, restrictions that other texts might well, have in it, terms it, of, of gaining It's experimental access. space. Yeah, it's that experimental space that allows you to have those discussions. Um, but also science fiction... And being able to... Do, having plausible deniability. That's not about you. That's not about politics. That's not about Trump. Yeah. This is only... This is about sort of broader, bigger issues yeah. that yeah. come to science through science fiction. Sorry. And science fiction's been very good at kind of uh, observing and studying totalitarianism uh, for years, maybe during a period when, you know, it wasn't that relevant, it, it carried on looking at totalitarianism um, and and trying to understand what happened in certain countries uh, in the past mm. uh, and what's still dormant. And now we're going, oh, yes, we've read about this. And, yeah. and it's that recognition of the grotesque and the brutal and the totalitarian, uh, uh, the fact that we're still versed in it. We, we have science fiction to thank for. I'd like to agree, but I don't <laughs> think I can. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that it's, it's, I mean, I think it's notable, for example, well, you know, Trump gets elected and one of the things that happens very, very soon thereafter is the is that it, the, 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 the novel, It Can't Happen Here, sales of it start to shoot through the roof. I mean, it's very, the one thing that gave me slight hope in, the, in those dark days of 2016 was basically walking into bookshops and seeing the collection of, of stories that were put together. And partly that was, useful because of what you've said to, to, you know that this it is we have been here before we've been here in our imaginations and we got out of it so it provided a to me at any rate a comforting sense of distance from events as they were eventuating mm-hmm. um I, I think i saw the first almost the first tweet i think that that I read from um, Dave Hutchinson after Brexit was in relation to his brilliant Europe series. And it basically, the gist of it was, I didn't intend those as a how-to manual, mm-hmm. which I thought was just fantastic. But it's so a, a comfort, an insulation almost from, from reality as it happened. Um, but also a sense that, okay, well, this, this, this too shall pass. But it's also, I mean, you know, one of my favourite um, SF films is basically Men in Black. Um, because I, I love the kind of the way in which it, it, it trips about with the notion of the alien. I mean, you wouldn't. Some people might want to call that a dystopia. The notion of like constant surveillance. Although that's that's where we are now. But I can't watch that anymore, be- precisely because of the 
what it then says about the, you know the, the families of the Mexican border and the fact that you know I've read some I mean I've I've read some pretty unpleasant things some of them written by Robert Heinlein who is again an author that I, that I value very very highly but it turns out that human beings are capable of doing things that even science fiction writers haven't yet written down sorry that didn't i didn't mean to that to end quite so miserably i was <laughs> but it, but it, looking for an upbeat thing but as you say heinlein can be redeemed uh, to a certain extent um uh, um was the starship troopers looks at heinlein and actually used heinlein to kind of explore fascism really yeah i'm thinking of farnham's freehold i can't really see any way in which you can redeem that okay. little <laughs> That and fifth, uh, sixth column. Those two books in particular are the ones that, well, yeah. So th they're they're not with the rest of the Heinleins. They're on the higher shelves so that my ten-year-old can't <laughs> read them until I can explain things like um, historical distance. I wonder also to what extent uh, scientific realism is important uh, for for science fiction generally, but also predicting the future. There's a version of, a very oversimplified version of the history of science fiction that essentially divides science fiction writers into into two camps, uh, the Jules Verne and the H.G. Wells camp. Uh, Jules Verne being very much interested in scientific realism and H.G. Wells being more of a, um, a thought experiment kind of writer who, who kind of uses different um, scientific or s societal contexts to... Uh, play out certain uh, moral situations. Uh, there was a famous uh, exchange, which wasn't a direct exchange between Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, um, in an interview with R.H. Uh, uh, Sherard, Jules, uh, Jules Verne, talking about H.G. Wells, said, I make use of physics, he invents. I go to the moon on a, in a cannonball, he uh, discharged from a cannon, there is no invention. He goes to Mars in an airship, which he constructs of a metal which does away with the law of gravitation. But show me this metal. Let him produce it, uh, Jules Verne said. And in, in return, H.G. Uh, Wells, in uh, the preface to Seven Famous Novels, uh, he, he wrote of, of Verne, uh, his work dealt, al uh, dealt almost always with the actual possibilities of invention and discovery, and he made some remarkable forecasts. The interest he invoked was a practical one. Many of, of, many of his inventions have come true, uh, but, but these, these stories of mine do not pretend to deal with the possible things. They are exercises of the imagination in a quite different field. So there's two camps that are set up here, uh, according to this highly uh, uh, oversimplified version of uh, uh, the history of science fiction. Those that are interested in prediction uh, and uh, the use of technology and how what technology can realistically do, and those which uh, are not really interested in scientific realism at all, uh, and you could almost put kind of space operas and things like that in that in that latter category because they're all walking around in spaceships even though there's no gravity there. They're all doing interstellar uh, flights, which are not really possible uh, given the laws of uh, the, the the restriction of the speed of light, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. You have this this kind of uh, you have hard science fiction, um, scientific realism, and and a more kind of playful, uh, kind of a fantastical version of science. Is that uh, is that important in the way that we criticize and understand and unpack unpack um, the the use of science fiction as a predictive tool, as a way of uh, looking at the future, or is it is it unimportant? I think it depends how you're thinking through that particular approach. So if you're getting then into long discussions of accuracy and whether the science is right and and you get reviews of science fiction that will literally sit there and pick apart the tiny, tiny bits of the, of the sort of science content and, and show why it's not feasible, ignoring the sort of broader context in which that appears. I think there's there's interesting discussions to be had about how the science fits into a particular story is it i i teach um i'm in the middle of teaching a unit at the present moment on science fiction and we're into the like will building beginning of that particular unit and it's thinking whether the science sits in the background in a sort of Verne sort of way where it is is the frame is the setting for the story or whether a piece of science or technology is the center of that particular narrative that drives the narrative and i i think those are still 
you have different versions of science fiction in terms of how science in, fits into that. Um, I find discussions of accuracy really frustrating um, in terms of, of pulling that apart. And I get do a lot of events where people are like, yeah, but the science was wrong. And I'm like, but did it matter to the story? Did the inaccuracy of the science pull you out of that narrative or did it draw you in what what had to be added changed adapted in order to make that story work but just to play devil's advocate for a moment if somebody said i didn't believe that character if i didn't believe the psychology or the motivations of that character then that would be a fair criticism yeah um i don't believe that character would have done that thing um, that's you know that would have been possible for that character to do that thing. Then that's completely fine. But, but it's believability and accurate accuracy as as sort of connected, but not necessarily exactly the same things. If if a piece of science or technology is fitted into a story world and makes sense within that particular story world, then I think that's different than if you pull it out of the story world that's being created and plonk it into our version of reality. It it sort of thinking about it within the context of that particular story and whether that world allows that particular thing. But there, there is also such a thing as the willing suspension of disbelief. Yes. And the problem with a kind of scientific literalism as applied to science fiction is that it misunderstands. Science fiction is fundamentally a metaphorical literature. It's a metaphorical literature because it aims to represent the world without reproducing yep. it. And the key props and tropes of science fiction the time machines and the ray guns and the, and the matrix is a metaphor. You can work out the, the world building consistency so that it doesn't bounce your viewers out of their willing suspension of disbelief. But it's not the same thing as reality. And it's a it's a kind of category error to think that it is. Yeah, there's also there's the famous you know, and it also kind of it harks back to that very kind of late Victorian notion of rational recreation as well. Um, and one of the kind of I was talking earlier about the use of science fiction as as a as a as a tool of modernity as a tool of development, you can see that in a lot of the ways in which um, people historically talked about children in science fiction. Um, and I think there's actually didn't Asimov say that his his father let him read the science fiction story magazines in the shop because he thought he was learning something about science. Um, that the, they were somehow purer or more useful than than the the, the, the cowboys and Indians ones. And from that, you can kind of see a trajectory that leads you to, you know, Patrick Moore, who basically wrote about science, and uh, Patrick Moore, the British astronomer, um, who presented the sky at night for what fifty years, um, famous, <laughs> a famous and very familiar figure to people of a certain age, um, who went before, who suggested that UNESCO needed to license science fiction books, that basically there needed to be a committee that was that would that would read science fiction and would approve them mm -hmm. as suitable mm -hmm. for young minds in terms of the accuracy of their science fiction. Now, thank, can you imagine that? But thank God it never happened. But the fact that it was proposed as reasonable, and it does, I think, come back to you know, the, the, the division that you pulled out between um, Wells and Verne there. I mean, Wyndham again... When he was asked to define and talk about science fiction, basically divided it into three different categories. There was basically the the technicians' extravaganzas, yeah. by which he meant the kind of Vernian kind of like we we're going to get everything absolutely technically right, and nobody apart from us is going to be able to understand any of the words we use. But we are <laughs> going to be supreme and pure in our devotion to the laws of the world as we understand it. That's great. There's the yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> there's, there's there's yeah. Really really inspiring. Um, there's the kind of B-movie Hollywood stuff, as he dismissively described it, where basically you just take away the you take away the shotguns and replace them with laser guns. And then there's the Wellsian tradition, which Wyndham plonked himself very, very firmly in, where, as Amy said, it doesn't matter about the science. What matters, what doesn't matter about you know, the total scientific accuracy is is unnecessary. What matters is that it be consistent. You know, you don't need to it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be real, but it needs to be empirically, it needs to be methodologically real. So you need to see a kind of internal coherence and an, inter an internal con consistency. The logic of the universe has to, has to be there. And then from that, you can extrapolate the consequences to the way in which human beings apprehend each other, define each other, the way in which we define humanity and our relationships with each other. I think Amy wants science to... Science is thinking about science um, as part of society as an institution as something that is a set of um ideas that are then 
expressed through uh, a narrative yeah. through a, a society um, rather than a specific scientific um, element. Yeah. And I think, for me, that's one of my interests in science fiction is the way that science as a practice is framed, um, regardless of whether the actual sort of like novum, the, the, the scientific change, shift, whatever that makes it science fiction. I'm, I'm more interested in... Uh, these ideas of the systems of science, as David Kirby calls it, this sort of idea of not simply um, saying what a science is, but actually showing the practice of creating that practice, that yeah. science, showing um, the processes, the failures, the the sort of nitty gritty of the the science, whether it's accurate or not. It's sort of making it into a cultural yeah. science as culture, rather than science and culture being these two yeah. separate spheres. Yeah. And we need to think about what we're addressing when we think in terms of accuracy. So the examples you're giving there, Ra, are things like artificial gravity and machines that can travel faster than light. And these are techno technological objects. But there are other aspects to science. Anthropology is a science. Ursula Le Guin is an anthropological science fiction writer. And she's interested, as Wells was himself, in how societies as a whole fit together, how myth and legend and social interactions and how things like gender and how these construct the, the nature of the social organism. And that's that's much more fascinating to me than than whether you've, your spaceship can go faster than light or not. Yeah, I, I, I'm interested in it, particularly in relation to sort of uh, its pedagogic value and also its, uh, its kind of political influence. If, we, if we're um, trying to uh, whip the country up into a, a state of enthusiasm over a, a space race, let's f uh, let, uh, for, ex for example, um, then our, our, our writing, our science fiction can be ambitious and bold and, uh, and uh, yeah, and maybe to a certain extent it can be, you know, it can break a few walls as long as it shows that kind of, that, that vision of the future as, as maybe Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke was a very realist writer, but uh, you mentioned Kubrick, he was perhaps a little bit more um, uh, kind of open um, as, a, as a visionary. If you're trying to encourage people to, to get behind a space program or a national project, then um, you, can, you can allow that amount of, uh, uh, of license. But if you're trying to maybe educate or, or warn people about something uh, about about the dangers of humanity and the mistakes of humanity, like, for instance, the, the climate crisis. Is there not a responsibility to to make sure that we don't lose people who are just going to say that's fiction and uh, that's that's based on false premises? Oh, is there not a um, an obligation or responsibility to 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 realism in those kinds of uh, cautionary tales? Well, I think again, the, what it comes back to is this: it comes back to the question of what what is science fiction for, and f in in response, I would say its role in that context is to make people aware of the extent to which our daily lives are underpinned by scientific decision, decisions that have been taken about science and technology, and to make them think of science and technology as exciting things, as things that they might want to do, things that they might want to pursue, things that they might want to investigate, things that could literally change the world. One of the, one of the inspirations behind the Unsettling Scientific Stories project that you mentioned earlier and that Amy and I worked on with colleagues was the... the frustration that I was experiencing. I work in a department of socio... I'm a historian of science. I work in the department of sociology. And encountering students who basically said, well, why do you rabbit on about science all the time? Science is boring. Science doesn't have anything to do with sociology. And after I'd stopped repeatedly banging my head against the wall, I would then try to explain, well, look, you know, you know that mobile phone? Think about the impact the mobile phone is having on the way in which you interact with, the, uh, the, the, uh, with your social life, the way in which you interact with your peers. Think about what would happen if the electricity went out. Think about how it's possible for us to have all of these people in a swamp just outside York. How did we get there? How did, we make, how did the university itself get made? And what we wanted to do was to through the project to be able to show just how just how much the the twentieth century is created by decisions that have been taken about science and technology. We be, we began it. Um, the, the project began in in um, the late. Um, 
19th century, in 1884, with the, with the production for the blueprints of the first, um, the first power station for the domestic generation of electricity. And we ended it in around about 2004, which was the point at which we realised that the domestic generation of electricity was having consequences for climate, for the climate, for the planet, for and for our understanding of anthropogenic climate change. So we kind of we were looking at that from that moment of right. This is what science science is going to light our homes. It's going to make it possible for us to do all these kind of things. My colleague um, Ewan Morris, who worked on the earlier stages, you know, has beautiful tales to tell about the the the, the passion for electricity that was shown in, by the Victorians and the Edwardians, and the way in which they genuinely believed this was going to be a, a world change. You know, it was going to be that it would revolutionise family life, it would revolutionise every aspect of, of, of social life. And it's incredibly positive and it's incredibly hopeful. And then we get to the, the futures, the climate change futures that Amy touched on and that you've just referenced as well, where we see what the unintended consequences of all these were. But at the heart of it all is basically, is, is, and this is why you know, I think of science fiction as the literature of, of, of modernity. It's, it's what happens once we start, once we start to industrialise. It's what happens when we start to urbanise. It's the, the, the changes that in the world that we have created that enable us to live the lives that we do. And part of his job is to explore those consequences and to, and to encourage and to excite people's imaginations. There's a downside to that, or potentially at least a downside to that. It's the business of stories to be entertaining, to be exciting. And science as such has no such responsibility. The responsibilities yeah. of science are to address specific problems. I mean, I think Apollo was a great human achievement. And there was a time in 1969 when Neil Armstrong stepped out onto the moon when the whole world was genuinely caught up and excited in it. But that excitement hit the, hit the bumpers very quickly because the rest of the Apollo missions were very dull they did what they had to do but they didn't capture people's imaginations Unless so then they went wrong it, in which case they well, were interesting again well that's true but then by 1977 a film called star wars comes along that yeah. sells space back to people that capitalizes yeah. on the, the interest that people obviously have in yeah. going out into space in a much more exciting way yeah. and people prefer it and you yeah. get that direct Spent more connection. money on the, on all the star wars more more money has been generated by the Star Wars franchise than was spent on the Apollo missions. It suggests that we prefer our fantasies to the dull, tedious, methodical realities that science can sometimes uh, offer us. And it, I wonder um, where science fiction sits in terms of uh, that that shift. You talk about, um, in a way, you could look at the 80s as the last, in, in terms of Hollywood at least, as the, the last kind of uh, decade of science fiction, if you like, in that you had the sort of James Cameron, Ridley Scott films, um, which were blockbusters, but they had they had already kind of been uh, uh, Star Wars had come in and and kind of um, established itself as a much more universal kind of franchise. And uh, you, you know we've we've moved into t Tolkienian type uh, sagas since then, and now we're in a kind of uh, this era of the superhero, which is sort of set in the present it's very very individualistic yeah. um it's not based on technology really um there's there's uh, iron man uh, talks about science in a very unscientific way now and again but it's it's just based on a uh, self-appointed selection of uh of, of superheroes whether we're talking about marvel or dc uh or spin-offs uh, breakaways from them um it's just something which has happened these characters are just suddenly super powerful uh with no consistency of of will building um and it would you could you could argue it's, it's pretty pretty narcissistic in the way that people relate to those characters uh you know as, as fantastical entities but do they tell us anything uh about society um in the way that science science fiction or the science fiction films uh up until the 80s did well there's a danger that they tell us they tell us what we want to hear they, a film like Black Panther becomes a big box office success and that's read as if racism's not a problem anymore. Yeah. Captain Marvel shows that a woman can helm a, a billion-dollar earning movie, so sexism and misogyny are not problems anymore. You're thinking this is not true. This isn't true of the world. These are compensatory fantasies yeah. in a world in which racism and sexism and misogyny are, are just as problematic as ever they've been. That's not what we want to confront. We want these 
fantasies of power, super power, that we could just leap in a single bound away from all these horrible realities. You could, yeah, I suppose what I'd want to add to that as well, though, is the, and, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything Adam's just said there, um, you could, again, make that point about the original series of Star Trek, you know, this notion that it's a multicultural a multi-species um, crew that's going to go where no man has gone before. Um, you know, you've got Russians on the bridge, you've got um, Japanese Americans on the bridge, you've got you've got the black woman on the bridge, and then you look, read um, Michelle Nichols's autobiography, and you you you, know, you can hear the, the 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 kind of depression and the misery as she you know, talks about getting these scripts, which are often have quite meaty roles for Uhura to to play. You know, at least at the level of what Chekhov and Sulu got to do. But they would get cut and cut and cut until finally she was there going, hailing frequencies open, Captain, and that's the be-all and the end-all. racism but in the entire system. She gets paid by the hour as opposed to having a yeah. salary. It's yeah. sort of on screen, it's one thing, yeah. but the reality is... And the, to the point where she says, right, sort this for a game of soldiers, I'm going, to re I'm, go I'm going to resign. And she doesn't resign because Martin Luther King yeah. asks her not to. Because Dr. King says, you're the visible proof that the future isn't all white, that there is a future for black people as well. Um, and of course then the the influence that she then has over um, Mae Jemison talk, you know, the, the first African American woman in space um, you know, the, who opens her own session on the, space, on the International Space Station with the words, hailing frequencies open captain. And in a wonderful kind of, you know, end run round then comes and actually appears, she's an extra on Star Trek The Next Generation. Now, you can d read that in two ways. I mean, it's it's one in, in exactly the same way as, as the point that Adam's made in relation to Black Panther. I mean, suddenly, okay, it's not racism is not a problem because we can have black people on the screen. But on the other hand, at least you get the sense, at least it shows the future isn't all white, which is a problem. And it's one of the things that we've been investigating as part of a, a different project, which is basically asks the question, what is the future for? Um, and a series of other interrelated questions, one of which is, who is the future for? Right? Whose futures? The futures of astrofuturism are very different from the futures of Afrofuturism. The futures of Elon Musk are different from the collective, the street corner collective that's writing Solarpunk and basically trying to create a living wall for the neighbourhood. So when we talk about the future, I mean, it's not the future, it's futures. Mm -hmm. um, and what it looks like depends profoundly on where you sit in relation to a, a, a deeply divided and bloody miserable society. And it, although it may have been colonised by the enterprise, enterprising out there in a very sort of American-century kind of way. Wagon train to the stars. <laughs> yeah, it can be de decolonised. It, yeah. uh, it can be reclaimed um, and it can... It hasn't actually been taken. It continues to be free and open, we c you know, and available to be reinvented and and occupied in different ways by different people, different imaginations, different writers, different characters. Yeah. Levar Burton first came on the screen, achieved fame, and he played uh, Kunta Kinte in the television series of Alex Haley's Roots back in the 1970s, which was an enormous uh, event, a sort of social historical event. And then he went on to play Geordie LaForge in Star Trek The Next Generation. So we can ask, in which of these two roles, just to go back to what you were saying earlier, Rob, which of these two roles, the kind of historical realist role that actually put on screen the realities of American slavery or the science fictional role, which is the one that's had the, the biggest impact, which is the one that will they'll be mentioned when Burton finally dies in his obituaries? It's the, it's the science fiction one. As long as it's not his appearance on Big Bang Theory, I mean. It's <laughs> <laughs> I wonder when that was going to get mentioned. <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's. It, it, I was thinking of it in relation to a point that Amy was making. I think, you know, um, I think Jim Parsons said it's 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 been fantastic playing Sheldon Cooper because I've been allowed to say all the things that you're just not allowed to say, you know, because you've got plausible deniability because Sheldon's an alien. But again, I mean, the way in which I mean, I love, you know, I. I I enjoy watching Big Bang Theory. It is a deeply racist, deeply sexist, and 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 deeply heterosexist um, series. I think, in my opinion, I enjoy it nevertheless. But it, it's it's it worries me sometimes that again it portrays this particular picture of what a scientist is. That if you want to be a scientist, you're going to be a geek. 
you know the girls aren't gonna want you know, to aren't gonna want to spend time with you okay Leonard gets Penny but it's that's very much that's part of the humor of the series and again you know it's it's not it's not TV's job to create better societies unless you're the BBC I suppose but it's it, it plays into this it plays into this notion of the scientist as people that are apart. But which is problematic. It's very problematic. But on the the flip side to that is it's it's incredibly optimistic because it's having four, five, six characters talking regularly about quantum mechanics and and the very title is something which a very large percentage of the US uh, don't actually believe in. Uh, yeah. Still, a sizable percentage of the population is is creationist. Um, so. Any kind of mainstream presence for science, however problematic or, or, or you know, uh, cliched it may be, is progress. You're shocking. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, we're back to the point about, you know, does Black Panther mean there's no more racism in society? I mean, it's, but it, it's one of the things that pleased me when science fiction started to develop much more of a mainstream presence. Um, was the sense that you know I'd, I'd spent my 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 life reading science fiction. I mean that's you know, that's that's you know it's ever since I met it as a tiny child in Neath Library. This this is that's the fiction that I've always gone to and come back to 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 inspire me and to entertain me and to make me cry and to make me laugh and to make me you know to make me who I am. But it's so I was pleased when it started to become more mainstream and more and and more referenceable referenceable in that way. But the reason why I like it and the reason why it, turned, it probably did turn me into a historian of science was because, again, of the fact that it shows you that every day, in every aspect of our lives, we are dependent on science and technology. And anything to me that basically says, yes, OK, you, um, there are these things called scientists and they are somehow different from the rest of us. They are strange. They don't know how to interact. They put their underpants on their heads and talk through flippers. You know, that 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 scares me um, and worries me because it means what, what I want to do with the courses that I teach my students and what I want to do with the work that I do on science fiction is is to show that no, science is not anything apart. It's not something that is handed down from gold on tablets of gold. Science is what scientists do and scientists are human beings with all of the problems and issues and frailties that the rest of us have. And they have a crucial role to play in the kind of future creation that we've been talking about. Because, of course, science fiction is just one part of that whole future development or that whole kind of, you know, you've got the kind of the scenario planning that the Rand Corporation and the Shell and the, and the, and the um, Shell Company have done. You've got the kind of the basic forecasting. You know, um, I've just come from Yorkshire. You've got Mother Shipton's Cave and Nostradamus, who appears to have gone quiet recently. <laughs> when I was a kid, every so often you'd get a prediction, oh, Nostradamus predicted this or whatever. All of these efforts at predicting or creating the conditions in which we can apprehend and manipulate the future, and science fiction is just one, one part of those stories, but it's, it's an incredibly important part of it because of its capacity to inspire the imagination. Fiction is, is you know, I always come back to the, the kind of the, the, issue, the, the point raised by the, the philosopher Professor Dumbledore, you know, the last kind of Harry Potter thing. When he's talking to Harry and Harry's in that limbo in the, the, and there's the skin Voldemort is under a chair and and at some point Harry says to Dumbledore, but Professor, you know, is 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 all this happening in my head or is it real? And Dumbledore says, well, of course it's happening in your head, but why does that make it not real? And I think that's important to think about when it comes to fiction. Fiction is 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 the organ. Fiction is the organised imagination at work, and it's it's a collective. It's 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 the product of of a single heroic individual like Adam writing, but the way in which it, the way in which it influences its influ its influence is collective, and the response to it is is community based, and it can change the world. When role models and images of science don't exist in reality, um, fiction has that opportunity to be able to provide those role models that reality doesn't so a lot of my work looks at at sort of um women and minority representation in the sciences and specifically the representation of their expertise um and if there are not role models uh not only for young women in science um but also women who have, have come through the process we talk about this leaky pipeline because um people can't see a future for themselves within a particular industry or particular um space 
so having science fiction you were talking about Mae Jemison thinking about looking at her and going I can see a black woman in space I can be a black woman in space that sort of capacity to see that imagine that future for themselves um in a way that's not necessarily there in reality science fiction has that opportunity that possibility um there's sort of I get a lot of questions about well why are we forcing women into stories about science fiction why are we forcing diversity into these and I'm, it's it's to do with a bigger systemic institutional um side these sort of bigger issues in terms of thinking about why they're not present in reality and how science fiction can help us to explore those particular ideas again going back to this where I started this idea of hope and of science fiction being able to be a space where you can imagine your own future in your own life but also in that fictional experimental space I think that's a perfect place to end uh, hope uh, hope and Dumbledore uh, <laughs> thank you thank you everybody uh, for your contribution today thank you Adam uh, who's been joining us via Skype uh, thank you Amanda and thank you Amy only remains for me to thank uh the uh, sponsors of uh, this podcast, which are uh, Manchester uh, Metropolitan University and the, uh, in particular the digital labs here uh, and also uh, Arts Council England. Uh, tune in next time. Storgy seeks to publish and promote exceptional literary short fiction. We take pride in discovering new and emerging talent. So if you have a story, visit us at storgy.com. Discover the macabre secrets of the eerie town of Shallow Creek. Blast into dystopian worlds with Exit Earth. Or find the blackened husk of the American dream with Roger McKnight's Hopeful Monsters. Competitions with cash prizes and merchandise that any book level will cherish? Check out storgy.com today.